sit there. See, pastors, you're going to have to, oh, Joey, no, oh, oh, no. I guess I really, that was, that was well played, well played. But um, hey, I just had a thought for you, just a thought. Here, here's what it is. When you go to Children's Church today, and when you go to Waterway 25 today, you're going to do things over there that none of us have any idea about. We don't know what your lesson is about. We don't know what your activity is about. We don't know what you're going to do. So here is your assignment, okay? Here is your assignment. When you are driving home from church today, okay? When you're in the car driving home, when your parents are driving home. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. When you're in the car on your way home today, I want you to think about Children's Church or Waterway 2-5 and tell the people in the car what it was about. Is that a deal? Think about it and tell them, like, what did you do? What did you learn? So when you go to Children's Church, you're going to have to be thinking, what am I learning? What are we doing? How can I remember? And when you go to Waterway 2-5, you're going to have to remember, what am I doing? What am I learning? How can I remember? Charlie, I would love for you to preach the sermon next week. Are you ready? You've got the hand motions. You're doing it. This is, it's like a mini-me right here in a mirror. So think about Children's Church and Waterway 2-5, and I hope that you'll remember something that you can tell the people in the car about on the way home. Sound good? All right, let's pray together. You remember how we pray? Put our hands together. I usually bow my head and close my eyes and stand on one foot. All right, you guys are listening. Good. Lord, I thank you for these boys and girls. And Lord, I pray that you would raise up from among them missionaries, preachers, teachers, elders, encouragers, doctors and nurses and counselors and social workers. And I pray that among these kids, you would raise every one of them to serve you in some powerful way so that we can make a difference in this world and help more and more people to know about you and your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, this is my prayer. Holy Spirit, come and make it so. Amen. Thank you, boys and girls. And parents, if you need any prompting or, or on the way home today, if you've got a kid in your car who can't remember what their lesson was about, just ask them some questions. What, what did you talk about? What did you think about? What activity did you do? And especially if you have a kid who's in Waterway 2-5, here's, parents, this will help you, okay? In Waterway 2-5, ask the kids about saran wrap, Okay? Saran wrap. The one thing I know about what they're doing today is that in Waterway 2.5, they have saran wrap. In fact, they have a ball of it. It's about the size of a beach ball. What's it about? Well, ask your kids. And if you don't have any kids or grandkids or, or people that you know, you're going to see them walking back in at the end of the service today. There is nothing that a little kid would love more than this old person they don't know asking them what Children's Church or Waterway 2.5 was about. So ask them. Listen, I'll tell you, um, I had a, had a strange experience this week. It was on, um, it was on Thursday, and I was, uh, I was working from home. It was in the afternoon. Remember, Thursday was the day, if you were in Oxford, it was a snow day, you know, because of all the, of all the weather. But um, I got distracted, and, and right before supper, I found myself cleaning out a drawer in my desk that just had old stuff in it, old things like a couple of mementos from high school and some stuff from college, and just like previous chapters of life, you know, and I was going through it and I was in, I guess, a kind of a mood. I was like, why did I keep this? Why did I keep that? And I was throwing some stuff away and like old chargers for old phones that I don't have anymore and, and floppy disks. Any of you have floppy disks? I realized I don't even know how to get stuff off of this. So I got rid of my floppy disks. But, 
But um, I'll tell you what I found. I found a little card that was written to me from Martha Wagner. Now, most of you don't know Martha Wagner, but Martha Wagner was, um, she was the wife of the pastor emeritus at the Mechanic Grove Church of the Brethren. Um, Martha Wagner lived in the house where Galen Horst's parents lived for a number of years up near Quarryville. Martha Wagner's husband, Murray, had been a pastor for a while at the church where I grew up back in the 50s, like, you know, way back then. But I, um, I played the trumpet one time in church when I was in, I must have been in fifth or sixth grade because I started playing the trumpet when I was in fourth grade. And Martha Wagner wrote me a little card. And on the front, it had a quote from Isaiah. And on the inside, she just wrote me a really nice letter that said, I saw you play in church today. It sounded great. I love the song that you played. And she mentioned that song. And I don't remember doing that, but I'll tell you what. 35 years later, I still had that card in my desk. And now it's back on top of my dresser where it had been through middle school and high school until I went away to college. I think most of you in this room don't realize the impact that you have. I think most of you in this room don't realize how much those guys are going to treasure your words of encouragement. Or the people who light the candles, they may not realize, or you may not realize how much your thank you means to them. And so congregation, let's continue, even, even if you're not a kid person, okay? Even if you don't really know who any of these kids are, because there's so many of them, and where are they going, and they're really quick, and they all look the same. I know, I know. But if you have a chance, if you have a chance to say thank you, or give a card, or even ask a question, what do you do in children's church today? Your influence and encouragement may go further than you realize. And it may just be in the year 2080. Somebody will be cleaning out their desk. If the Lord lets us get that far. Someone may be cleaning out their desk and see a thank you note from you and remember how you encourage their faith. That's just a little commercial here, I guess, at the beginning of the sermon. Today, uh, we're really focusing on another child. How's that? That's a good transition, isn't it, Steve? Another child. We're going to talk about Jesus today. We're going to talk about Jesus. And we're in the book of Matthew. It's Matthew chapter 1. This is one of those classic Christmas um, passages. Today, we're looking at the book of Matthew. Next week, we're going to look at the birth of Jesus in the book of Luke. Uh, and the Matthew account is, is a little bit more geared towards the perspective of Joseph. That is Jesus' earthly father. Next week, as we read from Luke, we'll see the, the birth account a little bit more through the perspective of Mary, Joseph, or, uh, Jesus' mother. But today we're going to look at Matthew. We're really going to look at Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to start our deeper study in verse 18. But I want to draw your attention to the first 17 verses. Is there anyone who would like to stand up and read aloud the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1? Yeah, no, there's a lot of names in there, right? It's a genealogy. And some of you, I know your eyes glaze over when you start reading, you know, um, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That sounds good, right? We, we get it. Ancestry was really important for a lot of folks and a lot of cultures over the years. Ancestry was especially important to the Jewish folks at the time of Jesus. Your ancestry determined your home because you lived in the area where your forefather grew up. And, and ancestry, in fact, determined your calling. You remember that only Levites, only if you were in a certain family group, could you even be a priest, right? So ancestry matters. A lot of times our eyes glaze, glaze over, but there's something really interesting I want to pull out 
of Matthew 1 through 17 before we move on to the next little commentary that really connects with Christmas. So there's this whole account. It starts with Abraham. Now, we know Abraham was not the first person who was created. We're going to look next week. We're going to think a little bit more about this with Mary. But Abraham was the the first of of those who we might call the Jews. God started with Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a whole great nation that will be your your, uh, not ancestors. That's if you go older. If you go newer, your descendants is the word I'm looking for. It's all right. We'll get warmed up, church. It'll be okay. Matthew 1, verse 2, Abraham's the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And you can read about all this stuff in the Old Testament. And there are three sets of 14. So there are 14 generations that are listed from Abraham to David, and then 14 generations listed from David down to the exile to Babylon, and then 14 generations of Jewish people listed from Babylon to the time of Jesus. It says in verse 17, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 from the exile to the Messiah, 42 generations. This is how Matthew starts his work. We might think, well, okay, fine. A typical list. We get, I don't care. Family trees, I, don't, I get it. But uh, okay, this is not a typical list. All of the men you know are Jewish, which we would expect. This is the line of Jesus, starting with the first Jewish person, Abraham. But there are five women mentioned in this list, which would have been unusual. It was unusual to have women listed in an old Jewish genealogy because inheritance came through the men. That was usually how people did things. But there are five women mentioned. One of them is Mary. That's the last one. That's the mother of Jesus. But the other four women are actually unusual people to mention in the first place. And if you want to do a little bit of homework this afternoon, I'm going to give you some Bible passages, read some really interesting stories. Grown-ups, read them with yourselves first. Read them to your kids later after you've kind of made everything uh, make sense. But the first person mentioned, her name is Tamar. She's mentioned in Matthew 1, verse 3. Tamar is first mentioned in the scripture in Genesis 38. She was a Canaanite. She dressed up like a prostitute and tricked her father-in-law into getting her pregnant. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of person people are really proud of in their family tree, isn't it? The next person listed, this next woman, this next unusual name that you might not expect to see is in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 1. It mentions a woman named Rahab. Now, Rahab didn't dress up like a prostitute. She actually was, for a living, she was a prostitute. She was from Jericho. How did she get into this line of Jesus' ancestry? Read Joshua chapter 2. Then there's a woman named Ruth. She is mentioned also in Matthew 1 verse 5. Ruth has a whole book of the Bible named after her, even though she was not from the right blood, so to speak. She had been a pagan from the land of Moab. And the Moabites, her people, were some of Israel's fiercest enemies. They were descended from Lot and his union with his older daughter. Ruth's husband married her, even though he was Jewish and should not have been marrying outside of Israel. And Ruth lost her husband at an early age. You can read that story in the book of Ruth and also in Genesis 19 to find out more about Ruth and her people. But yet here, Matthew, in telling about the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah, talks about Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. And then there's another woman mentioned. Her name is not mentioned, though. In verse 6 of Matthew chapter 1, we see that David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Her name was Bathsheba. She's just talked about as the wife of David. And in that story, in 2 Samuel, that story is rife with adultery, intrigue, and murder. 
Why do I bring this up? Why do I remind you of this little bit of context here in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, before we get to this story of Jesus? I want us to remember, and I want us to be able to see that God works through the nitty-gritty of all kinds of people to complete his mission. You don't have to be perfect to be used by God. You simply need to be willing to follow him. You don't need to have a perfect history to be used by God. You need to simply be willing to yield your life to him. As Anthony said this morning, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Everyone is invited to come to the Lord, even if your name is Tamar or Rahab or Ruth, or even if you are one of the men in this list. If you get into some of the, some of the truth about who some of these people were, you'll see that there are all kinds of characters who did not always follow the Lord closely, and yet God worked through all of them to bring his son Jesus, to our world as our Savior. It's good for us to remember Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, where Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. That's Jesus' message. And God worked through all kinds of people to deliver him. That's some fun stuff. We'll look at that a little bit more next week. But now we move on to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. And here's how, here's how Matthew transitions. He says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. So we get the ancestry, we get the history. Now we get what would have been in Matthew's time kind of the more contemporary events. Here's how Jesus got here. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So Mary and Joseph are pledged together. This is different than what most of us in this room who are married have experienced as dating, engagement, and marriage. When Jewish kids, and oftentimes to our eyes, they would have been kids, they would have been teenagers probably, when they were pledged to be married, they were stepping into a two-step marriage kind of a situation. First, first what happens it's not like an awkward phone call or an awkward text or an awkward conversation that says, can we go out on a date? Now, that didn't happen. Kids didn't normally arrange their own relationships or arrange their own marriages. Typically, there is an agreement reached, usually by the parents, while two kids are teenagers and they say, these kids are going to get married to each other. It looks good, doesn't it? Bob, I think your daughter would, would go along well with my son. What do you say? Well, let's put them together and we'll have a... And that was how marriages happened. So step one... If you were a Jewish person 2,000 years ago, and this is what happened with Mary and with Joseph, step one in your marriage was this agreement. And at this point, you are legally married. There are witnesses and there are parents and there are people that are around all this. The groom at this point pays a dowry or a bride price to the bride's father. This is a time for the young man and young lady to kind of learn about each other's character, even though sometimes they didn't even meet each other. This was just really a very legal, almost a business arrangement kind of thing. But it's kind of the official marriage, and, and if they are married, it takes a divorce to undo this. That's what it means to be betrothed. That's what it means for Mary and Joseph to be engaged here. It's, it's not quite the same thing as what we have now is, well, they're engaged because he gave her a ring or she said yes or there was a gift or, or they've set a date. Now, this is different. This is mom and dad have agreed. It's been stamped and sealed. But we're going to wait a little longer because these kids are probably 13 and 14 and we're just going to make sure that things work out for the next bit, sometimes even a year or two until these kids go home together and start their own life. So Joseph and Mary, at this point in the story, they've completed marriage step one, but not marriage step two. They're still in the testing out stage. 
And we know, now notice at this point, Joseph doesn't know, but we know because Matthew is telling the story, we know that this is through the Holy Spirit. It's not by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit didn't come down and and sleep with Mary. That's not the kind of thing that happened here. They found, found out through the Holy Spirit that Mary was pregnant. This is a miracle. God has created in the past, right? At the beginning of humanity, how did God create humans? Well, he worked a little bit in the dirt, but really it was just by his word, right? God can, God can create life all kinds of different ways. Here we find out that Mary is pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 19, remember, Joseph doesn't know yet. He has found out just through the Holy Spirit that Mary's pregnant. Perhaps it's starting to become visible. But Joseph, who is arranged to be married to this young lady, Mary, Joseph, who is concerned for sure about the integrity of his relationship because he doesn't want rumors about him. Premarital relationships in this time were absolutely not supposed to be sexual. And these Jewish kids knew exactly what all the rules would have been. So Joseph doesn't know yet how this happened. He just knows that the girl to whom he is married, step one, is now pregnant. They would have known the law, the... uh, the New, uh, New International Version says that Joseph was faithful to the law. You see that there in, in verse 19? Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, but he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Older translations of the Bible say that Joseph was a righteous man. Here in the New, New International Version, it says that he was faithful to the law. What would the law have said? Well, Joseph, knowing that his wife was pregnant and not by him, Joseph would have assumed adultery, right? I mean, isn't that how things happen? We like to to think that we've learned a lot, we've developed a lot, we've we've gotten so much more sophisticated in our medical understanding, but 2,000 years ago, people knew where babies came from. Joseph knew she was pregnant, but didn't yet know that it was the Holy Spirit. And so he's assuming adultery. And do you know what a young couple who were Jewish 2,000 years ago would have had drilled into them from the time that they were tiny kids, where they would have had Deuteronomy 22 drilled into them. The consequences for adultery, even if, even, even if you're not fully married yet, are these. In Deuteronomy 22, it says, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. It says in the law from Moses that you must purge the evil from Israel. And then it goes Deuteronomy 22. I know wonderful Christmas passages here. If a man happens to meet in a town, a virgin pledged to be married and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she was in a town and did not scream for help. The man, because he violated another man's wife, you must purge all evil from among you. Joseph knew this. Joseph knew that the religious rules of his time would be that Mary should die. Look what she's done. Look at the shame. Look at the unrighteousness. Look at the unholiness. In our culture today, in our world today, sometimes people may make a comment, but let's be honest. In our culture today, relationships outside of marriage are not very uncommon. Pregnancies happen all the time to all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. Go be a teacher in a first grade class for a week and ask the kids who's dad and mom. I'll tell you what, all kinds of interesting stories just here in our little rural town. But Joseph and Mary would have known that the penalty for adultery, according to the scripture that they grew up hearing, 
would have been death for all who were involved. Not only, not only were those consequences clear, and, and a, lot of, a lot of the rabbis by the time of Joseph and Mary had kind of softened that, that there, wasn't, there wasn't stoning happening as much anymore. But the dynamics would have been terrible to live with. Can you imagine? I, I mean, I hope this isn't too crass, but men, can you imagine that the woman you were engaged to becomes pregnant and you know it's not to you? I mean, can you imagine the shame Some of you can. Some of you know that shame, but can you imagine the shame of being cheated on? Can you imagine the hurt? I mean, Joseph obviously liked her. It seems like perhaps that he loved her. We're going to see that here in the rest of Scripture. It says that he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. He's still thinking about her. He's looking out for her well-being. Can you imagine how broken his heart must be to know that she was not thinking about him in the same way? Can you imagine the broken dreams I mean, how many of you have ever proposed and said, boy, I hope they cheat? Hey, I don't want to be flippant. I don't want to be flippant because so many of us in the room know the pain that comes with these things actually happening. But oftentimes at Christmas, we just kind of, oh, well, Joseph and Mary, isn't this nice? Let's look at what this scripture is telling us. Joseph, at this point, not knowing that the Holy Spirit has caused this pregnancy, Joseph simply knows that he can't go through with this marriage. Would you? But what did Joseph, this man who was faithful to the law, what did he decide to do? He's already facing the kind of stuff that Jesus teaches about a few chapters later in Matthew. Jesus, do you remember in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, over and over he says, you have heard that it was said. But now I'm telling you, and Joseph is wrestling in his mind. He says, I know that the scripture says that Mary ought to be stoned. She's pregnant. It's not from me. But yet he has compassion on her, and he doesn't want to shame her publicly. He wants to, he wants to kind of give her the opportunity to quit before he has to fire her, right? Joseph is trying to be honorable and compassionate. Have you ever wrestled with a similar situation? Have you ever in your life had a situation where where you have a desire to give grace, but yet justice has an obvious call? Have you ever seen grace and justice come into conflict sometimes? What we deserve is this horrible thing, but what I hope for is this good redeemed thing. Well, that's all of Christianity, isn't it? That's, That's what Joseph was thinking about. It says in verse 20 as we go on, after he had considered this, after he thought about, okay, maybe I'll just divorce her, divorce her quietly. People are going to find out in a couple months. It's all going to become obvious. This is going to work itself out, but I'm just going to step away. Maybe we can both start a new life. This is what Joseph is thinking. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. And you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. I just wonder what that felt like. I know feelings, but I wonder what that felt like for Joseph as he's here. Would there have been some relief? Oh, okay. Whew. That's, would there have been some really? Or here's my, my, I'm a guy that has a lot of questions. I say, How? Okay, angel, you're here talking to me. This is blowing me away. Give me just a little bit more information. Ah, boy, that, that would have been a fun conversation to be a fly on the wall. But the angel says, Joseph, don't be afraid. Take her home as your wife. It's okay. This is holy. This is legitimate. Nobody needs to be stoned here. Nobody needs to be divorced. 
And then the angel gives a prediction, a prophecy. She will give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus. Notice here that Joseph, the one who is kind of the father but not the father, is being told, you are to name this son. You are to take responsibility for this woman and this child. Give him the name Jesus. This is basically an adoption situation, isn't it? Give him the name Jesus. Jesus, by the way, pretty common name derived from the word Joshua, the name Joshua. Which would be, Jesus would not have been a strange name for anyone to be given back in this time. But the angel says, Joseph, this child is going to be yours. This woman is going to be your wife. You're going to be a family. Give him the name Jesus. And then the very last line of Matthew 1.21 fascinates me. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. This son that you're adopting, this Jesus whom you're naming and claiming and calling to be yours, this is going to be the person who saves people from their sins. Doesn't save them from their oppressors, the Romans. That would have been good news. And of all of, all of Joseph's memories about stories from the Bible, the little boy, what, what does... What does deliverance look like? Well, he would have remembered Moses and all the people being brought out of Egypt, brought out of their slavery, brought out of their oppression, brought out from underneath an evil king. Joseph would have remembered that. He, he would have remembered people being delivered from their earthly troubles and God bringing the Israelites to Canaan in his land flowing with milk and honey and how God wiped out all the people in front of Israel so that Israel could just march in and take over the land. Joseph would have known those stories like every good little Jewish boy. And so now here Joseph is hearing this angel telling him, take Mary home. This child will be yours. Give him the name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Americans in 2022, it is good to notice that the promise is not you'll be freed from a bad government. The promise is not you'll be freed from your earthly troubles. The promise is you'll be freed from your sins. And what's really kind of fun, and this will blow your mind if you think about it a little bit more, none of this happened at the initiative of people. God is doing all this. Mary didn't ask for it and say, oh, God, make me pregnant with a Savior. <laughs> we'll see next week. God just spoke to her and she said, okay. Joseph didn't ask for this. Joseph didn't say, God, I finally, my parents found the right girl for me. We're getting ready to set up house in a little while. I'm really excited. Could you put us in a really awkward situation? Joseph didn't do that. God is initiating all this. God knows humanity. God knows the whole genealogy that we read in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. God knows about Rahab, and God knows about Tamar, and God knows about all of these characters. God knows about all of our sin. All of it. And what did he do? He said, I've got to do something. And so he sends Jesus. He initiates this thing by the power of the Holy Spirit. All this took place, verse 22, to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God, even though we are filthy, God wants to be with us. He wants us to be with him. And so this is God's plan for making it happen. I will send them a savior so that I can be close to them. It says in verse 24 that when Joseph woke up, so he has a dream. The angel appears to him. It's a very clear dream. Clear enough that he told it to other people because it was quoted later on. How did Matthew get this information? Joseph had to tell somebody. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took Mary home as his wife. What is the first thing we see Joseph do after a powerful dream? What does he do? He obeys God. He obeys God. 
God spoke to him clearly. And Joseph said, okay. Now, can you imagine being Mary and being Joseph? These young folks who are still not fully married, they are betrothed, but, and now she's pregnant. People are going to start to see this, and, and they're getting around, and, and, and they're telling, well, it's okay. It's by the Holy Spirit. He's going to be the Savior. Uh, we didn't do it. Probably everybody in their synagogue said, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine the awkwardness? Can you imagine the the strangeness of just kind of comprehending all this. Joseph believes, and, and he does what he's supposed to do. Mary is faithful. We'll see next week her response is just wholeheartedly. She says, God, I'm in. But this is not a typical marriage situation, is it? This is not what these kids have been looking forward to, is it? Nothing more fun on the first night of the honeymoon than taking home your pregnant wife. It says in verse 25 that Joseph did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. So they had step one of their marriage in place. She becomes pregnant by the power of God. Joseph takes her to be his wife, takes her home with him, takes responsibility for this wife and for this child, even though the situation and the explanation is really an act of faith. And now Joseph, once, once they finally get to be together, once they finally get to have their, their, their happily ever after, he didn't consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. Any of you engaged out there? Think about that. That changes what you're waiting for, doesn't it? I mean, do you see the powerful obedience of Joseph here, the faithfulness of both of them? I mean, just put yourself in the shoes of these young people and imagine what this all would have been like. What does it say in the end of Matthew 1.25? When she gave birth to a son, Joseph gave him the name Jesus. This is how our Savior was born. This is how it happened. And let me ask you, if God can work through this kind of a situation to make this happen, is there really anything in your life that can't be sorted out? If God can work through this genealogy of people who are prostitutes or dressing up like prostitutes and there's incest and there's murder and there's adultery, you read about some of these kings and they were unfaithful and they were cursed. They were told that none of their kids would ever be on the line of the kings. There are all these problems with people and yet God works in this powerful way to deliver a savior. Is there anything that can't be fixed if you come to Jesus Christ asking for salvation and a new life? Is there anything that's too hard for God? He can make the virgin pregnant. What do you need that is so much bigger than that? See, this is the message today. This is a very, very common, very often read, very well-known scripture. Did you realize there is so much in here? Do you see what God is doing? God loves us enough to take initiative to save us. And all kinds of people are invited into this salvation. Jesus was sent for whom? Not just for the righteous, but Jesus was sent for the unrighteous so that those who are mired in their sin, those of us who are mired in our sin can come to him and be forgiven and be given new life when we believe in him. That invitation through Jesus Christ is offered to everyone in all of humanity. What we must decide to do now what we must decide to do is to either accept or reject that invitation to follow this Messiah, this Emmanuel, 
this Jesus. Will you accept that invitation to salvation? I don't know all of you. I know most of you. I know a lot of faces. I certainly don't know all of your hearts. Maybe you're, maybe you're kind of flying under the radar here today. You're still, still kind of figuring the place out. The place is figuring you out. You don't know a lot of names, and they don't know you yet. I, I don't know all the stories, but, but let me tell you, if you are not yet absolutely committed to Jesus Christ, the invitation is still there to come to Jesus. This Jesus, God loved us enough to send his son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is still here. Will you accept that invitation to salvation? I hope you do. If you do, do, do. I hope you have. And if today's my first day, yes, please come forward and talk to me after this service. Just, just let me know. I want to celebrate with you. I want to pray for you. And I want to remember you. We all have to decide what to do with that invitation. The reality is, is that a lot of us in this room are already saved. A lot of us in this room have already come to some point in our lives where we realize that we were a mess. We realize that our sins were overtaking us. We realize that we couldn't dig out of all this stuff by ourselves. And we've turned to Jesus. We've been saved from our sins and we look forward to heaven in our future. Not only that, but we look forward to a full, night, full life now. Not a perfect life. Jesus didn't come to deliver us from all oppression. That's still on the way. We still wait. But if you're already saved, I guess here's the question. Will, will you learn from Joseph's example? Joseph had plans to divorce, but he changed his plans in response to God. You know, church, we can't control our feelings, but we are always in control of our behavior. That's why when I was a little boy, mom and dad told me all the time, behave behave, behave. They, they told me that enough that apparently mom says one time I came home and said, I was having real good. Because <laughs> most of the time I didn't. I didn't like to behave. I wanted to do whatever I wanted to do. Why was I told to behave? Because it was expected that I could. You don't tell a kid to do things that they cannot possibly do. We can't control our feelings, but church, we are always in control of our behavior. We live in a culture that assumes that joy and peace come from living out your feelings. Listen to every Christmas song that doesn't originate in Scripture. You'll notice that there is quite a catalog now of Christmas songs that have nothing to do with Jesus. It's all just about snow and the tree and the love that we're going to find on that perfect Christmas Eve, right? There's all that warm, sentimental kind of feelings. There's, there's secular radio stations that can play Christmas music loud and not be worried about offending any people who don't have the same religious views that we hold here at this church. We live in a culture that assumes that joy and peace are available just by living out your feelings. But we sing joy to the world, the Lord has come. We sing sleep in heavenly peace, recognizing that peace only comes from God. You know, I've been working for the last year or more to, to try to take off some weight. Um, eating less, exercising more. There are no secrets. There are no shortcuts. I had some good folks around me who just showed me how to do that better. One day this week, a, a sister from here at church brought Christmas cookies into the office for Steve and me and for Lana and for Judy. God bless that sister. They were good cookies. Like, really good. Like, not just like, hey, I made some... Like, these had, like, candy buried inside of them, like, secret little things. Like, ooh, I, oh, man, that peppermint patty one was really good. You know who you are. 
but I've been trying to eat less and exercise more for a little bit more than a year. And, and um, I had a salad packed for my lunch on that day, but the Christmas cookies came right before lunch and they looked better than my salad. And so I just left the salad, I put it in the fridge. I'll have that the next day, I'll be a responsible grown up. And I just had a couple Christmas cookies for lunch instead. And you know what? I really didn't feel good after that. I used to have an iron stomach. I mean, I could eat anything. It didn't bother me. Wouldn't, wouldn't affect me. My energy level would stay the same. But I've gotten used to like eating differently. And eating Christmas cookies for lunch just didn't work. <laughs> but you know why I did it? It's the same reason why you do it. Because they looked really good. I wanted them. I'm a grown man. I go to work every day on Sunday. And if I want some cookies, I am going to eat some cookies. And I did. I had like five of them. And then I felt so guilty. I knew I couldn't have anything else for lunch. And that afternoon, I felt bad. Physically, I just felt bad. Our feelings lie to us, right? There's a part of us that says, this will be so good. This is going to, oh, it's just, I'll, have, I'll just have these couple but we overdo it because, well, I want another one. We live in a culture that assumes good things come from living out our feelings, just being, being true. You do you. Joseph experienced what it meant to follow God with all of his heart. And I wonder if we can learn from that example. Church, our mission, should we choose to accept it, is to focus more on life than on the mistakes, but to do our best to avoid the mistakes in the first place. Because most of us know better. God has spoken to so many of you in this room. God has given you clear direction, and God has given you a call in your life. Are you following it with all of your heart? Are you following with all of your passion and with all of your time? Or are there things that continue to distract you? I guess here's, here's my pitch. Here's my encouragement. Here's your application. Some things to live out, even here in a busy week. There are some opportunities ahead of you to engage with people and help them to know more about Jesus. Whether they already know about Jesus and they just need some encouragement to keep living it well, or whether they don't know anything at all and they need to start the story in chapter 1. Here are are a couple questions you might ask yourself. Is there anyone in your life for whom you can take a little bit of extra time this week? Sometimes we think about evangelism, we think about sharing our faith, and well, what new people am I going to meet? How am I going to find them? I don't even know, I don't get out very much. Okay, is there anyone in your life already who just needs a little bit more of your time? Can you be, can you be just that much more friendly to a cashier? How many of you are going to buy something this week? Can you, instead of even just being neutral, can you smile? Can you say hello? Can, can you even say something about your faith? Like just some little thing? Or if somebody's having a tough time, I know this might sound like really next level. Can you just, can you say a prayer for them while you stand there, either out loud or quietly? That can make a difference. There are opportunities here. Who can you pray for this week? I already challenged you to think about these little kids, these ones that are coming forward four years old to first grade, second grade to fifth grade. But look around you right now. Is there anyone in this room who you know is hurting? Is there anyone in this room who you know is lonely? Who you know is suffering loss? Yes, there are. 
Can you pray for them this week? And not just, not just today, but for the rest of the week as you, as you have time. And can you make time to pray this week? These are the kind of things that we can do. How many of you can acknowledge that God says to pray for those people who are in need? We know this, right? We have a clear mandate. Are we doing it? Can you do it a little more? Even in a busy Christmas week, I'll bet we can. You know, on Friday night, Anthony mentioned it. We've been talking about it for a month. We've got this Christmas Eve Eve service. It's pretty basic. And here is the strategy, just in case you haven't heard. We've got a Christmas Eve Eve service here. It's at 7 o'clock on Friday night, unless I know the forecast is not looking good. It's looking like it might snow. I hope it snows. I would love to have a big snowy weekend. That would just thrill me to no end. But if it snows on Friday, and if we have terrible, terrible, messy kind of a sit, we're going to cancel, right? And we'll let you know that. We'll send out an email that afternoon, and we'll put it on the website, and you'll know if we do that. But we're planning to have a service here on Friday night. And we're going to read the stories from Luke and from Matthew, and, and we're going to read about what it means to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And we're going to sing just the old school Christmas songs, very basic. We're going to light some candles while we sing Silent Night. It'll be wonderful. There's no sermon. It's just a time for us to get together and worship. And, and we've decided to put it together. It's a short service, 45 minutes or so. We wanted to leave time so that you can have people to your house afterwards. It's a Friday night, no school on Saturday. Invite somebody you know, somebody who's already in your world, somebody who doesn't have anything to do on that Friday night. Invite them to come with you to just a really basic service, worshiping Jesus. And then invite them back to your house afterwards for hot chocolate and, and cookies and whatever else it is that you love to do at Christmas. Just have some people at your house and follow up those conversations. Hey, how about that song we sang? Hey, how about that scripture that that kid read? How about this Jesus? Would you like to come to church with me on Sunday morning? Maybe you can make somebody's night who's feeling really lonely or isolated or discouraged right now. Maybe you can do that just by, I don't know, inviting people to your house and having fun. I know most of you don't know how to do that, but of course you know how to do this. Can you? That's, that's why we do it this way, so that it's set up for you. There's still plenty of time. Invite a couple people to your house on Friday night and have a blast. Celebrate Jesus. And then on Sunday morning, we have a fellowship time before worship on Sunday on purpose. I know a lot of you have plans. I know there's a lot of kids. They are just going to be so excited to come to church on Sunday morning. They're going to want to be here early. I know, I know. I know a lot of you have plans. I know a lot of you are not going to be able to be here on Sunday morning. Okay. But for those of you who don't have plans, for those of you who don't have a big celebration, for whom Christmas morning is just another day, we've got you covered from 10 o'clock to 10.30, we're just going to have some coffee out. Our fellowship team is working out. to have a couple little snacks. It's not a whole breakfast. All right? If you like your bacon and eggs, eat that before you come. But we're going to take some time from 10 to 10.30 just to be together because some of us just need to be together on Christmas morning. There's no one else to be together with. Well, come here. Come here. And if you know someone, maybe you have a neighbor who's not doing well. Maybe you have someone who their family's out of town they're just, or they did all their Christmas stuff last weekend and they're not, okay, well, can you come and be together? And then we'll have a, a worship service on Sunday that is going to be pretty basic, be a little shorter, probably. 
but we can celebrate Jesus. And we can be a landing place for those who don't have another place. I mean, that can be helpful, right? We're just doing what we can. And church, it's up to you to do it. It's up to you. Invite the people you know. I'm not telling you that you have to go halfway across the country and find somebody who's not a Christian yet. Just talk to the people in your world who need something. And remind them that in Jesus Christ, we have the answer for comfort and joy. Will you pray with me, church? God, I thank you for, um, I thank you for Matthew, and I thank you that he wrote down this story and these events that Joseph and Mary encountered. I thank you, Lord, for preserving this for us so that we can learn from their experience. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us to be inspired by Joseph's obedience. Help us, Lord, to follow you with all of our heart, no matter what is going on around us, no matter what the people might think, no matter what our assumptions had been. Lord, help us to follow you faithfully, even when things change our plans. And Lord, this week, I pray that you'll help all of us here and all who are watching online, help, help us to be mindful of how we can be helpful to the people you've already brought into our lives. Help us to be a little extra patient and loving and kind with those who serve us. Waiters, waitresses, people at the restaurant, people at the store. Lord, help us be gracious, joyful people. Lord, help us to be invitational to the people in our lives who are lonely or who need a friend or who just need something to do on Friday night or Sunday morning. And Lord, help us in all of those interactions to, to find ways to talk about our faith. Even if it's not a sermon or a full Bible study, just help us, to, help us to let people know that we believe in Jesus and that is our hope. Lord, give us courage live like Joseph did. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we can be together and study your word. Help us now to live it. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus, God with us. Amen. Church, would you stand and sing our closing?